0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Between 1990 and 2010, the number of people living with diabetes more than tripled, and the number of new cases doubled essentially every year. Diabetes is now the seventh leading cause of death in the United States. In fact, more people die from diabetes every year than from HIV and breast cancer combined. Due to the increased prevalence of childhood obesity, it's very possible that we'll see more diabetes as these children grow into adults. We've also seen an explosion of new treatment options for type two diabetes, as well as improved monitoring devices for our diabetic patients. Today, our guest will be Dr. Bethika Thompson, an endocrinologist at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. And our topic of discussion will be an update in type 2 diabetes. Welcome, Vithika.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, let's talk about pre-diabetes or patients who don't yet have a diagnosis. How? What's our best way to screen for this disease state?
1: Sure. Um, you know, so there are many ways that we can screen patients uh, for both pre-diabetes uh, and diabetes. Um, I think that... You know, probably the most common way it's picked up with routine screening. You know, done done in a primary care setting. Um, is currently now with the A1C test, uh, which is routinely screened for in patients. But in addition, you know, we can look at patients' fasting glucose, uh, which also is something that that usually comes up um, in a, a normal lab exam as well. Um, and the other marker we can look at is the two-hour glucose. That's not something that would be something. We see very commonly um, unless we ask patients to check that. So um, so probably the fasting glucose and the A1C are going to be the, the biggest, um, you know, indicators that, that we're going to look at uh, for both prediabetes and diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have different cutoffs for that. So, so a fasting glucose, a normal fasting glucose is about 70 to 99. Prediabetes uh, and abnormal fasting glucose can be about 100 to 125. If we start seeing fasting glucose over 126, that's when we start thinking about diabetes. And when we talk about uh, the corresponding A1c categories, uh, we define people with prediabetes with an A1c between 5.7 and 6.4 with those in that higher range uh, 6 to 6.4 at particularly high risk for development of type 2 diabetes. But we don't define diabetes until we get to an A1c of over 6.5%. Okay.
0: So I've got quite a few patients in my practice who I see every year and their fasting blood sugar is probably in the pre-diabetes range uh, 115 to 130 and they've been pretty stable over the years when do you decide to start someone on pharmacologic therapy
1: Yeah, that's a great question Um, there are certainly some patients that are in the pre-diabetic you know range and they're gonna stay there for quite some time now usually uh, those are patients that are pretty motivated to, you know, adhere to a good lifestyle. They're, they're healthy eaters. They are normal weight. They try to exercise. Um, but, you know, it, it's impossible to know how this is going to progress, and it's important to know that even very early on in the pre-diabetic period, we're already seeing beta cell failure. You know, so, so patients are already set up uh, to develop progression of disease to pre-diabetes or to, to diabetes, so... Um, in that pre-diabetic period, it becomes very important to stratify who you want to treat and and who you don't. And even if you're not treating them pharmacologically, um, we are still treating them with with lifestyle instruction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we have very good pre-diabetic studies. We know that everybody who falls into the pre-diabetic uh, you know values should be counseled on lifestyle change. Um, and our studies tell us that that is by far the best. You know, treatment to help avoid progression to diabetes. And it's, it's very highly effective. Uh, but you have to do quite a bit. You have to eat well. You have to maintain weight or lose weight um, if you're overweight. And you have to exercise about 150 minutes a week. So um, it's a commitment. Um, and that's something that should be talked about every single visit and trying to get people to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now there's also good evidence in this pre-diabetic period for bringing in the agent metformin. Um, and, and we do do that. And And I would do that, you know, usually in patients that are in this higher A1C um, range, you know, so 6 to 6.4, it starts to become more reasonable to add that in as well. Or in patients who, you know, are really not motivated to make a lot of these lifestyle changes, uh, then the evidence with metformin uh, to try to reduce the progression to diabetes is very good.
0: You mentioned lifestyle changes, and you talked about uh, exercise and weight loss. Where does diet fit in with this? Is is Weight loss, the most important part of the treatment, or what specifically should we tell them about diet?
1: Yeah. I mean, so the main things with, with the diet, you know, is, is trying to avoid high-carbohydrate foods and high-sugar foods. Um, you know, weight loss is important for patients who are are obese, you know. So, um, you know, in the studies that uh, were done in the pre-diabetic phase, you know, we recommended Weight loss of about 5 to 7%, you know, so depending on, on where your weight starts, then I mean, yes, that is a very important thing. And then constant activity, you know, such as being active. Um, and, and that was defined in those studies as 150 minutes a week of exercise. Um, and so I like to tell people that that's kind of what they should, should aim for, you know, mm-hmm. maybe about a 5% weight loss, 150 minutes of exercise a week. And that's a very good time to refer patients to a dietitian uh, because even if people think they're eating healthy, um, what I have found is that, uh, you know, people are often very much unaware of the effect that carbohydrates have on their blood sugars. And in general, um, as Americans, we tend to eat too many carbohydrates.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So we have a patient who is now on therapy for diabetes, pharmacotherapy. Let's say we're treating them with metformin. What are the goals for their glycemic control? Where do we try to keep them?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, so our... Glycemic goals, as defined by the uh, American Diabetes Association, is to try to keep your A1C less than seven percent. You know, so um, you know, I, I still stick with that. So less than seven percent. You know, I would call that uh, well-controlled diabetes. Um, there are, you know, other other societies that have come in uh, more recently in the last years, suggesting that perhaps in patients who um, We can, you know, get the A1C lower without significant risk of of hypoglycemia, uh, which is something I would not expect to see with metformin alone. It's reasonable to try to get your A1C less than or equal to Mm
0: 6.5%. So how do these goals change as our patient ages and or as they accumulate various chronic diseases?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, we always have to individualize A1C goals for every patient, um, and so certainly, uh, it is very acceptable to adopt an A1C goal uh, that's more stringent, like 6.5%, and someone who has a very long life expectancy, um, not a lot of comorbidities, not a lot of vascular complications, and who is very motivated. You know, to get their numbers down. Um, as as patients age, um, you know, and their life expectancy is is shorter. As uh, they have more comorbidities, it becomes reasonable then uh, to liberalize that goal. And and so it may be very reasonable, you know, in a, a 75, 80 year old patient who has a lot of other comorbidities, um, and it may be at higher risk of hypoglycemia uh, to say, you know, that their insulin goal may be closer to eight,
0: eight mm-hmm.
1: percent. Um, and so we have to always take that into account.
0: So trying to avoid hypoglycemic episodes in these very frail individuals.
1: Uh, it's very important,
0: absolutely. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, let's change the direction a little bit and talk about monitoring for our patients. Um, I remember the days in my early career when patients would check their urine sugar. Uh, that was replaced okay. by blood tests. And now we've got this continuous glucose monitoring. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. You know, that's a, a really exciting um, thing uh, for diabetes in general, Um You know, in in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, uh, the continuous glucose monitoring uh, was very, very exciting in the setting of type 1 diabetes, Um, you know, patients who are on insulin therapy, um, you know, lifelong and and really require a lot of information um, to make decisions from. More recently, um, continuous glucose monitoring has has changed in the sense that it's uh, become uh, more easily available even to our type 2 population, um, and and it comes with a lot of benefits. Uh, you know, patients uh, can have constant access to both the level of their blood glucose as well as the directionality of their glucose. So okay. so not only knowing, you know, that their sugar may be 150, but knowing that their sugar is on its way up. So it's 150 now, but it might be 200 or 300, you know, in the next, you know, 20 minutes. Um, and and this is all so exciting because it means that you don't have to prick your finger as much. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it, it you know, decreases the burden of the disease uh, for patients. And it's now um, something that is, is for a lot of people, um, you know, within their reach, you know, it's, it's affordable. Um, It's something that is being approved by insurance and recognized as being of asset uh, to diabetics. And I see people use it, you know, very successfully, both uh, type two diabetics who are on insulin and even those who are not on insulin, um, to help monitor their blood sugars and help them realize um, the impact that perhaps something they eat has on their numbers and helps them make better lifestyle change.
0: Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about treatment now. Uh, The initial drug pretty much has been metformin for for quite a while. Where do we go next if we have to add a second medication?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Metformin is still our treatment drug of choice. Uh, for monotherapy, when we start talking about adding drugs, so dual therapy or triple therapy, um, all of our our you know guidelines now are telling us that we should be thinking um, about two drug classes in particular. Uh, second line being the uh, GLP-1 uh, receptor agonists. These are the glucagon-like peptide receptor agonists and uh, drug number three um, being the SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, the sodium-glucose-like transporter 2 inhibitors. Um, and both of these drugs have been around for quite some time um, but are still relatively new, um, and they're of particular interest not only because of their impact on, on glycemic control but because we know a lot about these drugs uh, from you know past studies, and we're starting to learn that they have significant impact on a potential, um, you know, decrease in, in cardiovascular events, as well as potential for a decrease in progression of kidney disease, um, both of which are incredibly important, you know, diseases when we think about uh, type two diabetes.
0: I think as primary care providers, we we were pretty comfortable managing early diabetics with metformin and sulfonylureas, but it's getting pretty fuzzy now with all of the new agents out there and trying to separate what we use next and what are the advantages of one class versus another, are are there some basic guidelines we should use in terms of choosing which one of these four or so uh, classes are uh, next option?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, The the, the second option is is usually going to be what we call a glucagon, like peptide 1 receptor agonist. Now, the one caveat to that is that it's a shot, you know, and so some people, I think, shy away from that. Um, you know, just in, in their private practice because it's a shot, you know. But I'll tell you that um, just like most shots these days, uh, these shots come in this pen form that is very easy to use, very easy to teach a patient, um, and patients have no issues with them. Um, they're attractive drugs uh, because they're, in general, very well-tolerated. And they tend to have a very desirable A1C decrease, so you can expect to get a change uh, reduction of about 1%. Um, and they have a very good effect on weight, so the patients tend to lose weight on those medications. The other thing that people like about them is that there are daily forms of those drugs, but there are also weekly forms, so you can take it once a week, um, and, and so it becomes very, very easy to take. Uh, cost is always an issue with some of these newer drugs, but these drugs have been around a long time now to the point where, um, yes, they are going to be more costly than metformin you know, or sulfonylurea, but... Um, they
0: are covered by, by most insurance plans. That's big. one big complaint of uh, many of my patients is that some of these newer products are so expensive, and uh, mm-hmm. hopefully their insurance does cover it. I want to get back just a little bit to metformin because I just thought of a patient I had this week who is having a lot of GI problems with metformin. Are there some tips in using the drug that you can minimize the GI upset and lose stools, or do you just give up on the drug and switch to something else?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It's so common. Um, you know, the biggest trick um, is to try to transition patients to the extended release formulation of metformin. Um, and although that sounds, you know, uh, almost too good to be true, I'll tell you about half of my patients that have trouble, if I, if I switch them to the extended release form, um, they are able to tolerate it. You know, so it's definitely worth a try because metformin is a very effective drug. It's very safe, and we love it because it does not cause hypoglycemia. And so, so if your patient is on just regular metformin, having them switch to the extended release form um, can be very, very useful. Um, and I give them a full new try. So I have them stop it completely until they don't have any GI upset and then start again with the extended release form at a very low dose and build up to see what they can tolerate. Um, and... And I think even if they get up to, you know, just 500 twice a day or 500, you know, two pills once a day, um, and they can tolerate that, um, that's, that's still a benefit to them, you know, even in that low dose. Um, but there are patients that no matter what you try are not going to be able to tolerate metformin. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, then you do have to uh, move forward and add other drugs.
0: It does it help at all if, you, if you're if you giving just once daily, if you have them take it at the end of the day instead of in the morning? Does, does that Give any benefit?
1: It doesn't seem to help too much. No, people still complain of um, trouble with, with diarrhea Okay. That's the issue. All right.
0: Have all of the newer classes of uh, diabetic drugs have been shown to reduce cardiovascular disease mortality?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, the the uh, GLP one agonists and the SGLT two um, inhibitors both have been uh, you know shown to to decrease mortality in high risk populations.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. So. We've got a patient, maybe on two, maybe on three different medicines, and they're still not well-controlled. When do you decide to start somebody on insulin?
1: You know, that's a great question. Um, it, it really depends. You know, when, Once you start getting up to three to agents and you're in maximal doses and you're not well-controlled, that's a very good time to start thinking um, about adding insulin. And, um, you know, I, I always tell people that... Uh, you know, you really have to have some idea at that point, um, you know, about where your blood sugars lie. And because if you have patients like that, who have these high AM numbers, um, they may get by with just a once daily insulin, you know, and I have seen lots of patients who we are able to control on a once daily insulin in combination with, you know, like a GLP-1 agonist and metformin um, and get them to go. And, And that's definitely worth your try um, before, you know, subjecting a person to to daily prandial insulin as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, you know, it's it's very possible that that you'll have to go there. And and what I tell patients is that, you know, I tell them almost at every appointment and I remind them that diabetes is a progressive disease, you know, and so all of the things we're doing are very important and all of their efforts are very important. Um, but we have to keep that in mind that, that, you know, we may have to keep adding medicine until we can get it controlled.
0: Mm-hmm. Who's a candidate for an insulin pump?
1: You know, so an insulin pump, um, you know, we, we do use them in type 2 diabetes. Uh, the majority of the time we're using insulin pumps in type 1 diabetes. Um, and an insulin pump is for someone who is, is requiring full insulin, so, so both basal insulin, long-acting insulin, and short-acting insulin, or insulin given with food, and and for correction of high sugars, and there are a number of type 2 diabetics who do require um, both long-acting insulin and short-acting insulin, um, but it really just depends on the level of, of insulin resistance they have, and whether or not a pump would be a um, you know a good asset to them. And um, in the in the type 1 population, some of the advantages. Uh, of an insulin pump is that it is able to administer uh, very small increments of insulin, and many of those patients are very sensitive to insulin and need, um, you know, like 0.3 units or 0.5 units, and so um, it, it's hard to, to use, you know, standard insulin means like pens to, to give those small doses. Um, the other new advantage to, to pumps moving forward is that there are now integrated systems um, that are becoming, you know, that, that are becoming um, more advanced uh, that combine with sensors and are making some decisions um, for the patient, you know, outside of, of the patient, which is it's, we're in the beginning phases of that. We, we are clearly not to the stages where we have a combined closed-loop system, um, but, but that is a very exciting thing. And perhaps when we have that, it may be more attractive to a type 2 diabetic patient who's on full insulin.
0: Where are we on some of the more futuristic therapies, such as pancreas transplants or stem cell therapy? Is, is this going to be something we'll see in the future?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think so. You know, I think that diabetes uh, in the last 30 years alone, um, you could argue maybe has made more strides than almost any other chronic disease. And we are in a totally different place than we were then, um, and there are... You know, new technologies um, that are very exciting, you know, so from a technology standpoint, um, the next thing coming, um, you know, we have these, we call these hybrid closed-loop systems. One is on the market now. One will be coming next year. So they're very exciting. They take some of the work from patients. Um, Moving forward from that, the next thing will be a full closed-loop system, you know, an artificial pancreas. Um, and that's a treatment. It's a very effective treatment, but it is not a cure, um, but but it is a very effective treatment. so so that's half of it is is these technologies that bring us closer to to very, very effective treatments. The other half is is the question about the cure. And on that side, you know, are we making progress? Absolutely. Um, you know we have uh, very, very good research uh, for stem cell therapy, you know, for encapsulated stem cell therapy. Um that it's been very promising in in animal models and and being used now in humans. Um, you know, all of those things are very exciting. Um, and and we are only seeing progress uh, with all of those. So um, I think yes, I think that there is a very um, high possibility that uh, you know this disease will see a cure. Um, and and all of those are are currently promising technologies.
0: That's very good news. Well, let's close by, if I can ask you to summarize some of the key points you've made for our listeners on the uh, therapeutic options for type 2 diabetes.
1: Sure. Um, so, you know, I would say that uh, the first thing is, is to, um, you know, you want to diagnose this early. You want to be aggressive in the pre-diabetic period because you want to remember And a lot of the damage begins in that period, even though the A1Cs may still look good. Um, So every visit, you want to talk about lifestyle, exercise, eating well, keeping your weight down. Remember that cardiovascular disease is still the number one killer in diabetics. So exercise, weight control, blood pressure control, lipid control, all of these go hand in hand. Um, And moving forward, it's, it's very helpful to teach patients that this is a progressive disease that requires continuous monitoring, Following drug treatment algorithms that we have, which are very helpful, uh, that come from the American Diabetes Association and the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, can be used, um, and and I would recommend them to any primary care doctor. Uh, These spell out when we should start adding drugs, which drugs we should use, what we should look for. All of those can be very, very helpful. My biggest thing that I see from primary care is that people are afraid to use these newer drugs uh, that they are not familiar with. And all you got to do is start using them a little bit, and you gain some experience with them. They are underused, and it is at a big, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's really something that helps makes our patients suffer uh, mm-hmm. because these drugs are showing us over and over again that they have great benefits, um, and, and we should use them, you know, with our patients. So accelerating therapy, um, adding, you know, dual therapy, triple therapy, that is the best option. To get A1CZ goal. Um, and and then following patients and, and making sure that you keep adding drugs if, if we're seeing disease progression um, is very, very important. You know, helping relieve the disease burden for patients. You know, so helping them get sensors and, and other means to control their sugars, see their sugars without having to prick their finger, it makes a huge difference. Um, so so anything we can do to help them reach their goal. Um, which is much easier now with all this technology um, is to their advantage uh, moving forward.
0: Well, we've been discussing type 2 diabetes with Dr. Bithika Thompson from the Division of Endocrinology at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. Bithika, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. You're welcome. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks Podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.